Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, two series of podcasts looking at Florida history are being produced at the University of Central Florida. You know, it was not radio, it wasn't you know, television or anything like that. Like, podcasts seem to have its own, you know, even in, in its infancy, sort of had its own sort of niche. We'll remember House of Refuge keeper and newspaper publisher Sam Coutant, and we'll discuss how Florida was invaded during World War II with German soldiers actually coming onto Florida soil. Floridians who lived on the beaches at that time are appreciative of the danger that existed on our shores. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Chances are you're listening to this program on your favorite public radio station. However, if you're one of the many people who listen to Florida Frontiers at myfloridahistory.org or download the program onto your iPod, technically you're listening to us as a podcast. A podcast is a form of digital media consisting of a series of related episodes, either audio or visual, that can be streamed online to a computer or downloaded to a mobile device. A series of podcasts is being produced at the University of Central Florida as part of the Riches Initiative. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at UCF and Director of Riches. Riches is an umbrella program. It's the regional initiative for collecting the histories, experiences, and stories of Central Florida. It is a, a, an initiative, a program, if you will, that includes six or seven different projects, each with its own coordinator, each pursuing its own agenda in terms of the kind of research that it's doing. But it brings everything from those projects into a central location for distribution as a web site that is called Riches Mosaic Interface. And it is a repository, an archive um, that will allow people to understand Florida history um, using that website. New podcasts of the Riches program are produced and posted every two weeks. Robert Casanello is Assistant Professor of History at UCF and coordinator of the Riches podcasts. I became interested in podcasting a, a, a few years actually before Riches, we launched the Riches program, and I just was interested sort of as a, a, a listener. I downloaded a, a number of podcasts, and I enjoyed it as a medium. You know, it was not radio. It wasn't you know, television or anything like that, like podcasting seemed to have its own, you know, even in, in its infancy sort of had its own sort of niche. And when Riches was launched, I thought, well, what a great way to sort of create local history documentaries and produce them and then distribute them through podcasting. And what I did is I um, created a, a graduate class. And what I did is I charged the students with uncovering local history and to um, present that history in 15 to 20 minute podcasts 
And so what, what I wanted them to do is sort of kind of explore a really kind of creative side. I mean, I don't want them to sort of do the progressive era in Central Florida or the Cold War in Central Florida, kind of topics like that. That would be like textbook kind of things. But instead, what's the local character? And so I really kind of challenge them, say, get out and know your neighborhood. Get out and figure out what those stories are and figure out a way to do a podcast. Figure out who the experts are that you can interview. Figure out a way to tell the story. And a lot of them even brought in outside people to narrate the podcast who weren't part of the class, which was really sort of interesting. And so the reason I was able to do a, a series of these, so I had probably, I think, 15 students in the class, and I made them each create three 15-minute podcasts. So I had about two and a half years' worth of content, and that's how I've been able to distribute it on a regular basis twice a month over the course of this time. With all of that student input, the Riches podcasts are able to cover a wide variety of Florida history topics. Robert Casanello has been pleased with the diversity of subjects covered in the student podcasts. Well, what I did with the class was I, I had them each do three podcasts, but I didn't want them to do the same three podcasts as far as uh, style goes. So what I said is I wanted them to do one podcast that was an interview with someone, and I wanted them to do a second podcast that was focused on either an event or a person or a place or a thing, you know, um, that had some significance to the history of Central Florida. And then finally, I wanted them to do something that was more documentary style, where they took on sort of a question of the history of Central Florida and they tried to answer it. Now, uh, I, you know, most students rose the challenge. And what kind of was the most interesting thing is, you know, when the class started at the beginning of the semester, you know, they kind of played around and had, you know, their, their sweetheart topics. And they said, this is my topic one, my topic two, my topic three. And, and as you know, um, anyone who researches, you know, sometimes you don't get to research what you want because it's not available. You know, either you can't find the sources, you can't find the people, and the project sometimes doesn't come to fruition. So a number of students, I would say almost half, you know, one of their three topics didn't really come out. And so what I did is I used the opportunity to kind of infuse, because a lot of the students sort of gravitated towards things that were really sort of concrete things that were, um, you know, pretty easy to do and really accessible. And I really kind of wanted some of them, like some segment of the of the student population, to do something that was just weird, <laughs> to be honest with you. So I remember I, ha I had one student who lined up, actually lined up a really good topic. I can't remember what the original topic was. But at every point, this student, you know, he, he an expert fell through or, you know, someone he had to um, do some research with fell through. And so he wasn't able to kind of get this one project off the ground. And for some reason, he, he was bound to do something on Oviedo. He just really wanted to do something on Oviedo. And I said, you know what, the Oviedo chicken. And he looked at me really strange and he says, that is not going to work. I said, I'm telling you, if you do the Oviedo chicken, it'll be an interesting podcast at the very least, you know. And so he says, okay, I'll, I'll give it a go because his original you know, original project wasn't just wasn't going to happen, and so he went and he did this fantastic uh, podcast that was a really person on the street. You know, where do these chickens in Oviedo come from? What does it mean? How do the Oviedo chickens represent suburbanization and and, and um, suburban growth in the last twenty years in Oviedo? I mean, it was really it ended up being like a really kind of interesting podcast. So those were the type of podcasts that I really kind of gravitated towards. That and there's another another student did something on the uh, the mouth of Gatorland has a has an icon that that sort of was kind of esoteric and really interesting. And those were those are the ones I found I, I found most interesting. 
Surely the last thing a pedestrian expects to see on a city street is a farm animal. Walking down a sidewalk or driving through a city center and coming across a feisty chicken would give most suburbanites pause. Yet every day in the city of Oviedo, the public works, lives, and plays near several dozen large chickens that have claimed the very busiest portion of the city as a nesting ground. Even more remarkable, the city has embraced these wild animals not as a nuisance, but as a symbol of Oviedo's identity. Oviedo is not a small town by any means. The current population rests around 33,000, and the city serves as a busy suburb to the greater Orlando metropolitan area and the nearby University of Central Florida. However, this area has not always been so populous, and has its roots in agriculture, not housing. Oviedo, for the most part of the city's history, has been a pleasant rural town, as many in America were, with a very small population. Most of the residents knew each other, worked with each other, and took part in each other's lives, and lived the small-town life that is now idealized. Grow, growing up in Oviedo, well, it was like growing up in Mayberry. It was just a little tiny little town. Uh, the, the mayor was the barber. You know, it was it's just one of those places where everybody knew everybody. There was one little street light. Then, I mean, back then, as far as the chickens go, I mean, people all around Oviedo had chickens. And there'd be chickens out on the street or something. You just didn't pay any attention to them. They were just, you know, as common as seeing a crow. You know, it just wasn't no big deal. That's just how it was. Central Florida has been a major producer of citrus for over 200 years. Well, I really the like the Oviedo chicken, too. Um, that one um, has actually made it onto UCF TV. Um, it's been on the website. Uh, people talk about it. Um, so it really did turn out to be a, a very good one. Um, but I think the podcasts overall have been uh, very important to the students as they learn the skills for doing this. Um, but also in terms of the way in which it, it makes the history accessible to a wide variety of people. Um, it tells the story, and it actually brings in some larger historical questions uh, without beating people over the head about it. And I think in that regard, it has been very successful, both for the students and for the people who listen to the podcast themselves. In addition to leading the Riches program at the University of Central Florida, Connie Lester is editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. That academic journal has spawned its own series of podcasts. The Florida Historical Quarterly is in its 90th year of publication. Uh, it is the scholarly peer-reviewed journal of the Florida Historical Society. And we publish um, three to four articles with each issue of the quarterly. Um, the articles, as, as I suggested, are peer-reviewed by other scholars. So we feel confident that the, the things we're publishing in the quarterly are on the cutting edge of Florida history uh, and represent the best practices and the best kinds of scholarship um, generally in, in terms of Southern history, American history, and larger Caribbean and global history. In publishing the quarterly, we uh, sometimes publish special issues of the uh, of the journal. Uh, we just published one in the fall on um, the 1810 uh, West Florida Rebellion uh, that was quite successful, got quite a bit of attention, both uh, from our regular subscribers and also from um, subscribers in other states who were affected by this rebellion. Uh, and then in the winter issue, we published a second special 
um, a, a issue. Um, we don't usually publish them back to back like that, but we did um, this time. And this one was on the mediated state, uh, seeing Florida as a mediated state, the way in which we think about it and give it substance in the, in the ideas that it represents. Um, it's a little more literary in some ways than our usual publication, but we've uh, also received a lot of uh, publicity about it. Um, a lot of folks have asked us about it. And um, we just continue to look for the best scholarship out there and to publish it for our readers, for both academic readers and for general, uh, the general reading public. Dr. Lester explains what the Florida Historical Quarterly podcasts provide that the journal itself does not. They bring to us an audience who, who probably was unfamiliar with the quarterly. And um, that audience um, hears us on the podcast. And, and we know from, um, uh, from the podcast themselves that we are um, being heard by an audience that um, is beyond Florida's borders, beyond the borders of the United States. In fact, we have subscribers all around the world who regularly listen to our podcast. So we're getting to a different audience, a wider audience, a broader audience um, than perhaps we were um, who were reading the, the Florida Historical Quarterly regularly. Um, the second thing I think we do is that we allow people to know what it's like to, to be a scholar, to engage in research, um, and the kinds of problems that um, scholars routinely um, encounter, how they overcome those problems, uh, what their uh, ideas are in writing the articles themselves, um, how they think they've conveyed those ideas. We're able to follow up on particular points that might have been raised. Um, with the 1810 Rebellion, uh, we decided for that podcast that we would um, interview everyone who participated in that issue of the journal. Um, and the reason we decided to do that was that the um, that issue of the journal uh, was featured at the Gulf South Historical Association meeting. There was a roundtable discussion about the the uh, journal itself. And it was so well attended, the, the response was so good to that, that we decided to take the authors and, in a sense, recreate that roundtable discussion. And again, people were very excited about that. They enjoyed listening to that podcast. Uh, one other podcast where we did that with multiple authors was uh, we, we published an article uh, a couple of, uh, or an issue a couple of years ago in which all the the authors happened to be PhD students in Florida universities who were writing, of course, about Florida uh, topics. We decided to interview all of the the authors that time and to talk not only about their own work but about um, higher education, about graduate education, specifically PhD education in Florida universities. And once again, that was a very popular podcast. People enjoyed listening to what they had to say. And I think we reach, um, like I said, a different audience, an audience we hope we bring into readership of the quarterly itself. Uh, but even if we don't, uh, I think we uh, touch a different audience and an audience who's very receptive to what we're doing at the quarterly. 
Dr. Connie Lester is director of the Riches Program and editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. We also spoke with Dr. Robert Casanello, coordinator of both the Riches Podcasts and the Florida Historical Quarterly Podcasts. Links to both podcasts can be found at myfloridahistory.org slash weblinks. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features University of North Florida historian Michael Francis. Less than a year after founding St. Augustine in 1565, Pedro Menendez de Aviles dispatched one of his captains, Juan Pardo, to lead expeditions from Santa Elena on modern Paris Island, South Carolina, into the vast interior. What were the Spaniards hoping to find? An overland route to New Spain that would provide a viable supply link from La Florida to northern Mexico's great silver mines at Zacatecas. In 1566, Pardo and his men crossed the Carolinas to the foot of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Two years later, they once again ventured inland, this time as far as the Tennessee Valley, as they searched for new riches and a path to Mexico. Pardo and his men built six garrisons in the interior, but failed to find anything resembling an overland route to Mexico. By August of 1568, all six of Pardo's inland garrisons had been abandoned or destroyed, as Spaniards retreated to the safety of a handful of small garrisons along the Atlantic coast, including St. Augustine. University of North Florida historian Michael Francis. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Sam Coutant moved to Stewart, Florida in 1912 after serving as keeper of the House of Refuge at Mosquito Lagoon. Janie Gould talks with Sarah Prado of Vero Beach, who remembers Sam Coutant. An early Stewart resident named Sam Coutant became the town's first printer in 1912. He's credited with printing Stewart's first regular publication, a monthly magazine called the Florida Evangel. Coutant had served as keeper of the House of Refuge at Mosquito Lagoon in Brevard County for 22 years. Like other shelters up and down the coast, it was operated by the U.S. Life-Saving Service to aid shipwreck victims. Sarah Louisa Prado, 87, is Coutant's granddaughter. She was born in 1924 when Coutant was living in Stewart, but has records of his years at Mosquito Lagoon. That was a very lonely life on an island. There was only one tree on the island, and that was a scrub palmetto. So it got plenty hot in the summertime, no shade. No shade. Did he live there with his family? Yes. He had two little girls and a little boy, and their fun, one of the things they thought was fun, was putting their hands up to the screen and then quickly taking them away, and there would be a perfect black hand made of mosquitoes. 
Well, after all, they lived on Mosquito Lagoon. There were seven nets to come from outside into the house itself. Seven different spots that were all netted to keep out mosquitoes. After they left the House of Refuge, he ended up becoming a Stuart pioneer. Yes, he did. Attached to his two-story home, he had a little cottage from which he operated his printing business. He had a great big printer. I used to stand and watch when I was a little girl. He was a wonderful man. He could do anything. Because he was Quaker, I guess, that's why, he always had this tiny little Bible in his pocket, which I still have. What was Stuart like at that time? You were living elsewhere. Well, the big deal for me, I was about in second grade, I think, was that I was allowed to walk from Grandpa's house by myself up to the corner, which was quite a few blocks away, to the drugstore and purchase a one-cent candy. I love it. I still love it. A Butterfinger. They were big then for one cent, and that was the biggest treat. Oh, that was wonderful. So the house was close to downtown Stewart then? Yes, it was. Later, the house was sold to Bell Telephone. They had to tear the house down and also the printing establishment. What else did your grandfather do in Stewart? He had bees. He also had pineapples that he grew. We had a hickory nut tree, and he had guava. Ooh, it was good. He loved guava paste. One story Sarah Prado tells about riding down to Stewart when she was little has amused later generations in her family. We would stop at this place. It's just before you get to Fort Pierce. It was a great huge hotel. They also served meals. The big treat was to get an ice cream cone when you were five years old. Now, my daughter says that everybody remembers that place as being the house of ill repute. Oh, this is the building that's now an antique shop. That's the one. You and your parents would drive down from Jacksonville. US-1, of course, was the only road. How long did it take you to get to Stewart? Did you do it in one day? Oh, yes. It was a long trip, hence the ice cream. Coast Guard archives list the men who served as keepers of the Mosquito Lagoon House of Refuge. Coutant served from 1890 until 1912. Interestingly, the first keeper there, according to the archives, was the so-called King of the Crackers, Jacob Summerlin, who served from 1886 until being discharged in 1890. Sarah Louisa Prado lives in Vero Beach. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Most people are aware that German U-boats regularly patrolled the coast of Florida during World War II. It's less well known that German soldiers actually invaded Florida. Bill Dudley has more. This was a very serious time in the story of our state, and Floridians who lived on the beaches at that time are appreciative of the danger that existed on our shores. We were thoroughly involved in the action of the Second World War. University of Florida historian Michael Gannon, his 1991 book Operation Drumby, detailed the exploits of German U-boats off America's east coast early in the war. And in the first six months of 1942, sinking 24 Allied ships, freighters and tankers, loaded with aviation gasoline, oil, bauxite for aluminum, Beach Cottage residents were stunned in the mornings to find oil on their beaches, to find hatch covers in the surf, 
and occasionally to find bodies themselves of merchant seamen who had been killed in these attacks. Gannon says one of the most shocking incidents was the sinking of an American tanker off Jacksonville Beach, an event witnessed by thousands of people on a spring night in 1942. It was an incredible event for the people who were there. I've talked with numerous people who were at the beach at that time because it was a Friday night. Jacksonville Beach had a big amusement park and here this tanker comes along on its maiden voyage from Port Arthur, Texas to New York City with 80,000 barrels of, of oil. And right behind it is U-123, captained by Reinhard Hardigan. When the blazing tanker remained afloat after being torpedoed, Captain Hardigan circled around so his guns pointed seaward to avoid hitting innocent civilians on the beach. Then, silhouetted against the burning ship, he fired on the Gulf America's waterline until she sank. Interviewed in 1993, Jacksonville resident Philip May described the scene. As the flames increased a little bit, uh, the sub evidently moved in sort of between the ship and shore and we could see a, a vague outline of the sub-deck, but we could certainly see the shells leaving the, the deck gun of the submarine lobbing into this ship. Floridians were especially frightened because of the submarine warfare off the Florida coast, but also the feeling that, that Florida could serve as the soft underbelly for an invasion of America. In fact, on June 17, 1942, a group of four would-be Nazi saboteurs landed on Ponte Vedra Beach, south of Jacksonville. Historian Gary Mormino. It was the first invasion of America since the War of 1812. Four German saboteurs landed just south of Jacksonville Beach. They were part of Operation Pastorius, a German plan to blow up factory and transportation installations in America. They rowed ashore from a submarine wearing their swim trunks, but German marine hats with double eagle insignia and Nazi insignias. The reason was that if captured, they wanted to be treated as POWs, not spies. The invaders quickly buried their German caps, as well as several boxes full of cash and explosives, before changing into civilian clothes. And the saboteurs went up to Jacksonville Beach and managed to get transportation into Jacksonville. Two of them stayed in the Hotel Mayflower, two in the Hotel George Washington. What they didn't know is that four other Germans who had landed on Long Island a few days before were already being tracked by the FBI. All of the men had lived in the U.S. but returned to Germany before the war. Two were American citizens. Convinced the mission was a bad idea, the ringleader turned himself in. Within two weeks, all eight had been rounded up. This has implications for Americans today because President Roosevelt was enraged that the saboteurs might be treated as mere prisoners of war. He cited Abraham Lincoln, who suspended habeas corpus at one point, and tried spies by a military tribunal. And in fact, Roosevelt appointed a military tribunal composed of generals who tried and convicted the eight saboteurs. Asked to review the case, the Supreme Court upheld a death sentence for all eight. On August 8, 1942, six were sent to the electric chair, two were given life prison sentences. Today, over 60 years later, the manner in which the men were tried remains controversial. In the wake of 9-11, President George W. Bush asked for military tribunals for suspected terrorists, such as those detained at Guantanamo Bay, citing the 1942 decision. Critics have charged the president with going beyond his constitutional mandate. 
and although records show that Nazi high command, embarrassed by their failure, never again attempted such a mission, at the time no one could blame Floridians for feeling jittery. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.